And now as we come to the preaching of God's word, I invite you to turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. And while you're turning there, I want you to consider why it is that so many reject Christ. Why is it that so many perish in their sins? We saw last time that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And yet it would seem that so many reject him, even most reject him, and therefore die in their sins. I mean, just consider your extended family, for example. Consider your immediate family, your friends. Folks you've been possibly even praying for for years. There just seem to be so few coming to Christ in one sense. In another sense, there's a multitude that are coming to Christ, and that redeemed that stand before Christ on that wonderful day will be some from every tribe, nation, and tongue. But nevertheless, Jesus does say that the gate is narrow, and the, the, the way is narrow, and, and it leads to life, and there are a few who find it. Just consider your co-workers, for example, your, your, neighbor, your neighbors, even random people whom you've shared Christ with. Why is it that so few come to Christ? Well, our passage is going to answer that this morning. And the answer lies in man's natural disposition to the light. Let's look at the text, John 3. We can pick it up in verse 16, where it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not, did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. We're going to complete this section of John's gospel, which began back in verse 1 of this chapter. And so far, just to remind you, we've seen the necessity of the new birth. That unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We've also seen the, the nature of the new birth, that it's a sovereign, monergistic work of the Spirit of God. From there, we saw the reality that saving faith is a faith from above, a, a faith that finds its cause in the effectual call. And consistent with that, we've also seen that the benefits of the gift of God's beloved Son are reserved for whosoever believes. That it's through faith in Christ that one possesses eternal life. And now, as I've already noted, we're going to see why so many reject him. But before we see that, we're going to see first the purpose of sending the Son, and then the effects 
of sending the Son. And so if you're taking notes, I want you to jot this down. Note first, the purpose of sending the Son. And we see this in verse 17. It says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Now you'll note there that verse 17 begins with the word for. And so there's a a logic that's being built here in terms of an explanation that's come on the heels of the statement that Jesus made in verses 14 and 15. When Jesus told Nicodemus that the Son of Man must be lifted up so that all who believe will in him have eternal life, there was a a bit of a tension created, at least in the mind of Nicodemus and the group he represents. Now, why would that be? Well, it's because just as Nicodemus had believed that he would have entrance into the kingdom of God on the basis of his ancestry and and religiosity and even religious achievements, Jesus has declared that those things are of no value and actually render him no closer to the kingdom than when he had begun. In fact, a case might even be made that he was further away from the kingdom because now he had a, a wall of religious pride built up in his heart. And so when Jesus says on the heels of completely unmasking Nicodemus's false religiosity that all who believe will in him have eternal life. He is expanding the saving purposes of God beyond Israel and indicating that God's saving purposes include the nation. And that warranted the explanation given in verse 16 where it says, for God so loved the world. God's love wasn't a love that was merely reserved for Israel and and those who would even join themselves to Israel through the, the, the old covenant. But no, his love was for the nations. It is, was, and has always been for the nations going back to the Abrahamic covenant. In fact, going back to prior to the foundation of the world. And that, too, would have rattled the cage of the average Jew. I mean, the average Jew had messianic expectations. They, they believed the Messiah would come, but they believed that when he came, he would bring judgment, and that he would bring judgment to the nations. They believed that based on the Old Testament and Old Testament prophecy but that the Messiah would come and offer salvation to all who believe they didn't have a category for that. And so that too warranted an explanation, and the explanation is here given in verse 17. An explanation that addresses the faulty expectation that the Messiah would be sent into the world to judge it. And so look again at verse 17. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world. To judge there is expressing purpose, but it's clearly a negated purpose. And to judge here is to condemn. It's to pronounce final condemnation. And so God did not send the Son into the world for the purpose of condemning the world to an eternity in hell. That was not the purpose of his coming. But instead, second half of verse 17, that the world might be saved 
through him. Jesus came into the world to save the world. And he did this at the Father's initiation. He didn't come on his own initiative. It was the Father who commissioned him, and the Father commissioned him out of his great love for the world. To save the world from what? Well, to save the world from eternal judgment. To save the world from eternal hell, divine justice, the penalty of sin. Jesus didn't come to pronounce final condemnation on the world. He came with regard to his first coming to bring salvation to the world. Now this statement that Jesus came into the world not to judge the world, but rather to save the world, needs to be harmonized with some other statements found in John's gospel. Because though Jesus didn't come for the purpose of final condemnation, judgment has been given to him. And you see this in John chapter 5 for, for starters. In John, in John chapter 5 verse 22, and you can turn there. Jesus says this, For not even the Father judges anyone, but note this, He has given all judgment to the Son. So the Son has been given all judgment. The Father has delegated all judgment to his Son. But that's not the purpose of his first coming. Instead, the judgment referred to here will be executed at his second coming. And this comes out really in verses 25 and following where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And then note this. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the, who did the, the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. And so all judgment has been given to the Son. It's going to be the Son that executes that judgment, but that judgment is reserved for a, a future bodily resurrection for all those who die in their sins and fall under the final sentence of eternal condemnation. And so his first coming was with regard to salvation. His second coming will be with regard to judgment. And Jesus basically says this in chapter 12 and verse 47 and following, and you can turn there as well, where he says this, If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And then he says this, He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him on the last day. And so there's a real sense in which Jesus won't even have to say anything in the judgment because the word he has spoken to them will ultimately be their judge. And we're going to see that really in the next point as we look at the effects of the sending of the Son.
But there's another statement that needs to be harmonized as well, and you see it in John 9. John 9, 39. And this is a, a, a similar statement that we can also harmonize with what we're seeing in John 3, verse 17. In John 9, 39, it says, And Jesus said, For judgment, and that's really expressing purpose, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. And so again here, Jesus indicates a judgment-oriented purpose to his first coming. But there are two things to note about this. One is the irony. Jesus came to unmask Israel's false religious system, a, a system that consisted of the blind leading the blind. The only thing was the, the religious leaders of that system were ignorant to their own blindness. They believed they were the gatekeepers of spiritual perception, and so Jesus came to expose and unmask their blindness. And two, the judgment here isn't final condemnation. Instead, it's a, a judgment that separates the, the categories of believers and unbelievers by virtue of Jesus coming into the world and the fact that salvation is offered in him such that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. That results in a division, a, a judgment of separation. Those who receive Christ experience eternal life, and those who reject him are under judgment. And so it simply distinguishes believer from unbeliever. So whereas in John 3.17, the statement is saying that Jesus didn't come into the world to pronounce final condemnation, there is a sense in which he did come into the world to bring judgment, but the judgment wasn't a final sentencing of condemnation. Instead, it was a separation of believer and unbeliever. And so the purpose of sending the Son wasn't to condemn the world in final judgment. It was rather to save the world from final judgment. But again, we're going to see this just now. That though Jesus didn't come to judge the world, there's a, a judgment that just necessarily results. Because salvation for all who believe implies judgment for all who don't. And what's amazing about verse 18 is that that judgment isn't a future reality, it's a present reality. And so if you're taking notes, jot down second, the effects of sending the Son. The effects of sending the Son. Look at verse 18. It says there, he who believes in him is not judged. Why? Because he or she has passed out of death and into life. They, they have eternal life. Their sins are forgiven. The, the righteousness of Christ is reckoned to them. They've been reconciled to God. The, the wrath of God toward them has been satisfied. You know Romans 8, 1 well. What's it say? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so, he who believes is not judged, is not condemned. 
In contrast, however, the next portion of verse 18 now, he who does not believe has been judged already. Now that is a a significant statement because again, we typically think of judgment as a merely future reality, but here for the one who rejects the son, judgment has already been passed. They're already under the sentence of condemnation. And should they die in that state, they will merely enter into the full expression of what has already begun when they first rejected Christ. MacArthur puts it like this. While the final sentencing of those who reject Christ is still future, their judgment will merely consummate what has already begun. Unquote. And what's amazing about that is not only then is the unbeliever under the curse of the law, under the judgment of God, because they have failed to obtain and keep a perfect standard of righteousness, they compound that when they reject Christ and are therefore doubly condemned. Not only are they condemned by the law as those who are are, are law breakers, but they are also doubly condemned because they reject the only deliverance from that curse. And that's what's expressed in the next part of verse 18. Look at it. Because he is not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Again, if you reject the one who the Father sent, reject the one who the Father gave out of his great love, who has who was sent into the world that the world might be saved through him, then again, you reject the only means of deliverance there is and stand as one under the sentence of condemnation. And you can actually see this in John 3, verse 36, this reality that the wrath of God abides upon the unbeliever even now. Verse 36 of chapter 3 says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. We've been seeing that. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. It remains on him. The scriptures elsewhere describe even the state of the believer prior to coming to Christ as a, a child of wrath, a son of disobedience. And so though Jesus didn't come to pronounce a final condemnation on the world where he would just condemn the entire world to an eternity in hell, his salvation does bring with it a judgment for to reject Christ and not to believe on him for the forgiveness of your sins results in being under judgment. You have been judged a sentence that's not final, but is nevertheless in effect. And really, by the way, like the curse of the law, this obliterates any notion that you can earn your way to heaven because that entire notion is predicated on the reality that there's this future judgment and that when you get to that time before God, you're going to be in that place where there's a scale and you can put your good, your good deeds on one side of the scale and your, your bad deeds will go on the other side of the scale. And so long as your, your good deeds outweigh the bad, then you're going to be able to enter into God's kingdom. 
But the reality is that judgment has already been passed. If you have rejected Christ, there's, there's no future scale. There's no future discussion. If you reject Christ, then you are already under the judgment of God. And if you die in that state, then you will enter into eternal condemnation. Though the final sentencing of the judgment is yet future, the judgment is already a reality. When you reject Christ, you enter into that state of having been judged. And that's why any religious system and any advocate of that system that says you can't know whether or not you're saved until some future day of judgment is anathema. The whole idea that you can't have assurance about what your standing is before God now is, is a total violation of the gospel. It is a, a different gospel. And that's why the whole movement of Roman Catholicism is anathema. It preaches a, a gospel of Jesus plus works. It provides no assurance of salvation whatsoever and, and then even creates a system whereby if you haven't measured up to be good enough to enter into heaven, you get to go to purgatory where you can kind of work things out so that then you can be upgraded to heaven. No, if you've rejected Christ, it's already over. The, the judgment is already upon you. The wrath of God abides on you. You die in that state. It is a done deal. And so that system and its pope, no less, are cursed under the judgment of God. And that's because of what this text says. He who believes in him is not judged. And he who does not believe has been judged already. It is only by trusting in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins that you can be delivered from future final judgment. And trusting in Christ alone means repudiating any reliance on any effort to earn your own righteousness. And so we've seen that the, the purpose of sending the Son is that the world might be saved through him. We've seen the effect of sending the Son, that salvation for all who believe implies judgment for all who don't. And now we come to the question posed at the outset. Why do so many reject Christ? And so if you're taking notes, jot down third, the reason men reject the Son. The reason men reject the Son. This comes out in verses 19 and 20. Look at verse 19 with me. It says there, this is the judgment. This is the judgment. And with that statement, John is going to tell us what keeps men from coming to the light? This is the judgment. And here it is. That the light has come into the world. Now stop there for a moment. What does the light refer to? Or better, who does the light refer to? It refers to Christ. And that the light has come into the world points to what? The incarnation. When the word became flesh, 
and dwelt among us. And as the light that has come into the world, Jesus is the manifestation of eternal life. He is eternal life in human flesh. And you can just stay there for a moment, but listen to 1 John, first two verses. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Jesus is the manifestation of eternal life in human flesh, and he reveals the Father, the way of salvation, and is the incarnation of all holiness and purity. And you would think that given how religious the world is, you would think that given, as you read the Old Testament and Old Testament history, as religious as the nations were in all of their religiosity and and, and idolatry, You would think that when Christ came into the world as the light, that people would have flocked to him. And even Israel, you would think with with all of her religiosity and and, and claiming that they worshiped Yahweh, the one true God, and having been given the the old covenant and, and, and the temple and its sacrifices, you would think that when Jesus had come, they would have just flocked to him. And initially in his earthly ministry, they did but they did for all of the wrong reasons. And we're going to see that in John 6. And when he didn't meet their worldly expectations and didn't affirm them in their deeds of darkness, they abandoned him. Why? Next part of verse 19. Men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Now, I want you to notice the logic here. Don't miss this. People don't practice evil because they love the darkness. That's not what it says. People love the darkness because their deeds are evil. Look at it again. Men loved the darkness rather than the light, and here's why, for their deeds were evil. You could say it like this. They, they love the darkness because their deeds are evil. Why is that? Because, as we'll see in a moment, The darkness doesn't expose their deeds for what they are. Their deeds are evil. But the darkness doesn't highlight that. Doesn't expose that. Instead, the darkness is hospitable to their deeds. And even provides them with a a sense of false security. I mean, this is significant. It's not a love for darkness that results in one performing evil deeds. It's their love for their deeds, which are evil, that then creates a love for the darkness. And really what this means 
is that you know what a person loves, either light or darkness, based on their deeds. A person's deeds are a dead giveaway. If they love evil deeds, then they love the darkness. If they love deeds of righteousness, then they love the light. And this is all fleshed out further in verse 20 because it says, for everyone who does evil hates the, hates the light. Which is to say that everyone who does evil, where evil is the trajectory of their life, where they are slaves of unrighteousness and sin, they hate Christ. He's the light. Everyone who does evil hates the light. The light is Christ. Those who are committed to sin and wickedness hate Christ. But again, they don't hate Christ because they love the darkness. They hate Christ because their deeds are evil. Look again at verse 20. For everyone who does evil, evil, hates the light, and does not come to the light. Why? For fear that his deeds will be exposed. In other words, people don't come to Christ because they're unwilling to bring their lives under the light of his radiant holiness. For if they did, if they, if they were to subject themselves to the light, their deeds would be exposed as evil, and since they love their sin, they're unwilling to expose them. Simply put, the reason that people reject Christ is because they love their sin. It could be a love for pure immorality, pure debauchery, or it could be a love for religious pride and achievement. But either way, it's a love for sin. And that love for sin means they refuse to come to the light. What happens when you flick on a light and there are cockroaches on the counter? They scatter they flee. And that's how a person responds to the light who loves their evil. And I want you to look back at John 1.9 for a moment because John 1.9 sort of is the starting point for the section we're looking at in John chapter 3. In fact, our verses in John chapter 3, 19 and 20 almost function like a, a commentary on this. And when we looked at this originally, I know it was sort of puzzling to some of you, but this might help to shed some light on it. John 1.9 says, There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. And when you read that, enlightenment sort of sounds like it's a positive thing when, when in reality what this verse seems to actually be saying is that the light comes into the world and shines on all of mankind and exposes whether they love the light or whether they love the darkness. And so the coming of the light into the world doesn't enlighten all manner of men unto salvation, but comes into the world and exposes just what realm one 
person belongs to, whether it's the realm of light or the realm of darkness. Put more simply, the light coming into the world exposes the condition of a man's heart. And here's the thing. People will even create a different Jesus so they can claim that they have salvation in him while continuing to love their sin. It's what Roman Catholics have done. It's what Mormons have done. It's what Jehovah's Witnesses have done, all of which are systems of Jesus plus works and works-based systems provide a wonderful shelter, a wonderful place of hospitality for the deeds of evil, the deeds of darkness. But it's also what people do when they say that you can be saved, be delivered from sin, and yet remain the slave of sin. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And the logic is this. If a slave of sin, then a lover of darkness, and if a lover of darkness, then a hater of Christ. And so people will manufacture, will fabricate a different Jesus to accommodate their deeds so that they can claim to have Jesus and salvation and justification while all the while loving the darkness and loving their deeds. Any system that says it's Jesus plus works provides a covering for evil deeds. Any system that says you can have Jesus and be saved but actually demonstrate no change and no transformed life is a covering for evil deeds. The fact of the matter is that salvation is in Jesus Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in him alone, and those who come to faith in Christ receive eternal life, and that life coming into them, the very life of God in the Holy Spirit, transforms them so that they bear fruit and manifest a life that demonstrates they love the light. Just listen to 1 John 1, 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And this goes back to that wonderful saying, and it's only wonderful because it's true, that sin is the mother of all heresies. That's where heresy comes from. It comes from an attempt to accommodate a person's sin. When you love your sin and you refuse to come to the light, to have your deeds exposed for what they are, evil, you have to adjust the doctrine to provide a covering whereby you can claim to have whatever it is that you want in terms of false religiosity and yet carry on loving your sin. 
And so why do so many reject Christ as he is, the Christ of Scripture? It's because they love their sin. And they are unwilling to turn from it. And now, we're going to see a contrast. And the contrast is going to be a contrast between those whose deeds are evil and those who practice the truth. And we're going to see it in verse 21. If you're taking notes, note forth the effects of the new birth. The effects of the new birth. And you're going to see how verse 21 really beautifully just provides the wonderful bookend to this entire section of John's gospel. Verse 21, but he who practices the truth, stop there, who is the one who practices the truth? It's the one who believes. The one who believes and receives eternal life is the one who practices the truth. But the believer doesn't practice the truth to secure eternal life. Instead, the believer has eternal life, and that results in practicing the truth. And it's not a practicing of the truth with perfection, but it's a a practicing of the truth with progression, direction. And so look again, verse 21, But he who practices the truth comes to the light. And you'll note that the coming here doesn't describe a one-time act. This is a continual coming. This is not the coming to the light that results in the declaration of righteousness. It's not the coming that results in salvation, justification. It's not that coming. It's a continual, ongoing coming to the light, where coming to the light is a person's regular practice. Why? Look at the text so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. The believer who has eternal life practices the truth and continually comes to the light, comes to Jesus, so that his deeds can continually be manifested as having been wrought in God, which means that God is the ultimate source of their deeds. He is the one who is the originator of those deeds. And this is what we see in Philippians 2.13. Listen, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God works in the believer who has eternal life, and he works in them to get them to will and to work according to his good pleasure. He is the ultimate source of the good deeds that are produced by the Christian. And this is why Jesus can say in chapter 5, as we saw, that it's those who do good deeds who experience a resurrection of life and those who do evil deeds who experience a resurrection of death. The deeds aren't the condition that must be met to experience that resurrection. The condition is faith, but deeds necessarily result from real saving faith because that's what eternal life produces in someone's life. Good deeds are evidence of regeneration, saving faith. And so you can see how where Jesus began, where he declared to Nicodemus, 
You must be born again or you cannot see the kingdom of God. And then he transitions into the, the place of believing in the equation. He finishes back here in verse 21 with an emphasis on the reality of the effects of the new birth. The new birth generates faith. That faith secures eternal life and eternal life produces a life of habitual practicing of the truth. And so the question is this, does this describe you? Does verse 21 of chapter 3 here describe you? But he who practices the truth comes to the light, comes to Christ, comes to him continually so that his deeds may be revealed as having been, been worked by God, wrought in God. Because if that describes you, describes you, then just as Jesus rose from the grave, having conquered death, you too have the certainty that you will rise unto a resurrection of life. So that even if you should die physically in this body, you will rise from the grave on that great day and be given a glorified body fit for an eternity in the new heavens and new earth, in the presence of God and the Lamb where you will behold his face and worship him in everlasting joy, delight, and contentment. You know, when you think about what these verses are saying, this is why biblical preaching will often drive people away. Because biblical preaching is exposing a person to the light. It doesn't, it doesn't provide a, a, a place of hospitality for a love of evil deeds. And if a person's deeds are evil, they just may seek out preaching that's more accommodating to those deeds. But it has to be said at the same time that, that, that sitting under biblical preaching is not enough. Just sitting under the preaching of God's word is not coming to the light. It's not enough to merely hear the word. You can be under the preaching of God's word for a lifetime and never come to the light Remain in darkness, love your deeds, and love the darkness. And so the reality that needs to be considered here is that unless there is evidence that you are practicing the truth in your life, you have to go back and evaluate whether or not there's been real saving faith. Because saving faith is the product of regeneration, and regeneration results in eternal life, and eternal life produces deeds of righteousness in our lives, deeds that are wrought in God and originate with Him. And if that's not there, then you have to reevaluate whether you're truly connected to the vine. Because every branch connected to the vine is being pruned by the Father so that it will bear more fruit. The ones that don't bear fruit, they get taken away and thrown into the fire. And so you have to understand that the one who has believed in Christ, 
is not judged. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, but the one that rejects the Son is already under judgment. It's not a, a, a future thing where you can sort of figure out whether or not you're going to be okay in the end. If you reject the only means of deliverance, if you, if you reject the only offering, the only gift the Father has put in place for the salvation of the world, then you are under a sentence of condemnation. And though that condemnation isn't final, should you die in that state, you will suffer an eternity under the judgment of God for your unrighteousness. But God so loved the world that he sent his son into the world that, that, that he would then give his life as a ransom for many so that all who believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. And so the father in his goodness and holiness commissions his son to be the redeemer, deliverer, rescuer so that he would come into a dark world and ultimately call a people who were dead to life and faith in him. And so this day, if you have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, let today be the day. Believe on him. Commit your life to him. Turn from the deeds of evil you know to be wrong and come into the light and let your deeds be exposed for what they are as evil and be washed and be cleansed in the blood of the Savior. And so in this text, we see the purpose of sending the Son. It wasn't to condemn the world, but rather to save it. And yet, at the same time, one of the effects of sending the Son is that those who reject him are already judged. If salvation is given to those who believe, then it's implied that those who don't are under judgment. And the reason that men reject the Son isn't because they love the darkness, it's because they love their sin, and the darkness merely provides a, a hospitable place for them to love their sin and have a false sense of security. But those who are born from above and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, who continually come to the light to make it evident that their deeds are wrought in God, they are in the light, they love the light, and they have the guarantee of everlasting life in the resurrection. Amazing truth, powerful truth, crystal clear. Let's pray together. Well, Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father God, for this instruction, how it helps us to understand why so many reject Christ. And it also shows us how we came to believe in him. It's because you called us to life. And when you called, you called us effectually. So that the call itself produced in us life and faith to believe and trust in Christ. And then having eternal life, you began to transform us. Having already made us a new creature in him, 
and then conforming us ever more fully into his image. And so, Father, we, we rejoice that we love the light and, and have come to the light, and that as we come to the light, our, our deeds are being revealed as having been wrought in you so that you get the honor and you get the glory. And so, Father, we thank you. We pray that you would use this day to save any who don't know Christ. We love you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.